us hear the word of our God, Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. As we begin here today, um, I've been reading this book here. It's called Another Gospel by um, a lady named Elisa Childers. And uh, basically, um, she was you know, part of an evangelical church and such, and then uh, went to a conference, I believe it was, with uh, someone else, and really liked it, and they decided to shift to that church and so forth. Well, after a few months, started going to a Bible study and learned that this new church and new pastor was a progressive pastor, a woke pastor, as we might say. And basically everything that she had believed, from God's word to God's character to Christ, you name it, everything was challenged. And she almost lost her faith. But God, in his grace, uh, worked in her life uh, and helped her to uh, grow in that. Well, the reason I mention this is because in one of the chapters that she entitles Cosmic Child Abuse, with a question mark, uh, she quotes from some of these progressive teachers and pastors, and I thought they might be helpful as we come now to this topic of God's wrath and judgment. And so she, right at the beginning, her uh, small quote says, that God needed to be appeased with blood is not beautiful, it's horrific. It's a quote from Michael Gungor. Here's another quotation. This is from, uh, you know, the man who wrote The Shack? I remember hearing about that about 15 years ago. It was very popular. Millions of copies sold and such. Well, his name is William Paul Young. He also wrote another book, and in it he writes, If God originated the cross then we worship a cosmic abuser who in divine wisdom created a means to torture human beings in the most painful and abhorrent manner. And then another one by the same man. One of the narratives about God is that because of sin, God required child sacrifice to appease a sense of righteous indignation and the fury of holiness, Jesus being the ultimate child sacrifice. Well, if God is like that, then doesn't it make sense that we would follow in his footsteps? But we know intuitively that such a thought is wrong, desperately wrong. I'll read a few more here uh, in a few moments. But we're not talking about crazy loonies, as it were, in the mainline denominations. These people are part of the evangelical church here in America. These are people in churches that... You know, maybe just you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, we thought would be um, one of us, as it were, part of the Christian family. And yet this kind of teaching is becoming very, very common. And one of the main things they object to is this idea of God's wrath. That is somehow <clears throat> beneath God or something to that effect. Well, as we... Transition now to this section here of Romans. This is Paul's main point. God's wrath is revealed from heaven. And so let us uh, learn what Paul says, but recognize that this is becoming almost a unique position in the modern evangelical church. 
even in Reformed churches, some of these woke ideas are starting to infiltrate. And so let's understand it here carefully. Well, we have now concluded the introduction to Romans, verses 1 to 17. And in verses 1 to 7, Paul begins by uh, referring to his identity in Christ, then Christ's identity, and then our identity as Christians. In verses 8 to 15, he speaks of his prayers for the believers in Rome and his desire to come and visit them. And then as we saw in verses 16 and 17, Paul gives us the theme ideas for his letter. And we briefly uh, developed each of these themes, the, the theme of shame, and then power, and righteousness, and last week, faith. Each of these things are expanded upon throughout the book of Romans. And so we see it in this summary way as we begin. Well, Paul now <coughs> transitions to his first major thought. So if you have the outline here, uh, I want to look at it just briefly. Uh, you see the first two of them are, you might say, short and sweet. And we come now to the first major section, which begins here in verse 18 and takes us through chapter 4. And so this is the heart of the gospel, as the second one says here. Now, the, the longer, more involved one at the bottom uh, subdivides that for us. And then if you turn the page uh, the, on the back side, this and then the next one both separate chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. And, and this is right. This is clearly uh, a section that goes together. Now notice how it's often subdivided then. Verses 18 to 32 speak of Gentile sin. Then from 2, 1 to 3, 8, Jewish sin. And then verses 9 to 20, we're all sinners. And generally that's good and helpful. I'll say more about that here in just a second. Now, on the back here, this pictorial outline, you might say, uh, from Dr. Chamblin, from uh, my seminary professor. Um, remember, verses 1 to 7 uh, correspond to the end, verses 8 to 15, the next to last section. And then the biggest things on this are verses 16 and 17, and then chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. This is the most important idea, and he represents that way by making it so big. Well, now in between those two, we see chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. And notice it, how it's shaded in here, man's hopeless condition. Um, when he was referring to sin, Dr. Chamblin would shade it in. It's dark, you might say. And this section is rather dark. It's not something we like to talk about very much. But if we're going to understand the gospel, we have to understand it. If we don't understand God's wrath and our sin, then the gospel will be something different. So, um, notice how he presents this here for us. All right, now, Paul here simply is explaining how everybody is a sinner. Everybody is filled with shame. Gentile, Jew, everyone. Now, as we look at verses 18 to 32... Um, I, I think the, the general summary of this referring to Gentiles is helpful, but it's not, it doesn't cover everything. Especially verses 18 to 23. This isn't just a description of the Gentile. Everyone suppresses the truth of God. Not just Gentiles. But you and me, we suppress the truth. Every sinner does that. 
Furthermore, there's a description of idolatry in this section, and Israel, of course, worshipped idols too. So let's not be too hard and fast in our distinctions here. Yes, generally, this section speaks of Gentiles, but not exclusively. Into chapter 2, verses 1 to 16 can be subdivided and say, well, Paul's really speaking of the moralist here. He's not speaking of the Jew yet. This can refer to someone in the church, someone in the synagogue, someone in a mosque, the virtuous pagan, anyone who is trying to be moral and earn their way to heaven. That's what he's addressing primarily here. And then beginning in verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 8, it is more specific in regard to the Jew. Now notice what Paul has done here. In chapter 1, he spends 15 verses, okay, describing the Gentile, even all of us, suppressing the truth. Okay? And now here in 2, 1 through 3, 8, he spends 38 verses talking about those. And the answer is really why he does it, very straightforward. You know, we, we're going to read through this list here in, in chapter 1, and you're like, well, obviously, they're sinners, they deserve judgment. Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is, I mean, we're in Pride Month of all things, Right. And it's a fitting name, right? They're being prideful. <laughs> but anyway, I, those things are pretty easy to see, right? They deserve judgment. But what about the person who is a good person? Who is moral? Who helps their neighbor? Helps the lady cross the street, you know? Hey, what about the person who sits in church or goes to synagogue? What about the person who says that they love Jesus? Are they sinners too? Do they deserve God's wrath too? Well, the answer is yes, ultimately, we all deserve it. And so Paul spends over twice as many verses trying to explain that point because it's harder for us to accept, harder to prove the point. Okay. Well, then he ends this section in chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. And notice in these 12 verses, he quotes the Old Testament in nine of the 12 verses. Paul's assessment of sinful humanity is not just his idea. This is a biblical thought. This isn't unique to Paul in any way at all. We are all sinners and deserve judgment is the main idea. Now, as I've already suggested here, this section is somewhat depressing. Things that we don't want to uh, talk about. Uh, even the hymns, it have been hard to pick the right kind of hymn to fit the theme. And they're not quite as exciting as, as some other hymns or whatever. Um, and yet, we have to face these truths if we're going to rightly understand God and the gospel. Now, one of the things that happens when we start talking about these issues is that people, uh, including ourselves, want to redefine what sin is. And usually what this means is we minimize the extent of sin. We live in a culture that for many years, and including today, says that the government is our friend, right? Uncle Sam, he's benevolent. He's a good guy, right? Or we live in a culture that says people are mostly good, but yeah, there are a few bad apples and, and we throw them in prison or whatever. In the last, um, really, generation, but especially in the last few years, we've been hearing more and more how the oppressor is sinful, but the oppressed is sinless. This is why 
minorities can commit crimes and be let out of prison the same day. The white Christian man is the evil, racist, homophobe, and the women and minorities who agree with that are just upholding the hegemony, we are told. And this isn't just in the culture. This wokeness is in the church, too, as I've read. All right, well, with this is some kind of background and overview. What does Paul say here in this section? What is God ultimately teaching us? Well, notice how he begins in verse 18 with the word for. This is the fourth for in this series. We had two in verse 16 and then beginning of verse 17, and now here's the fourth one. Back to verse 15, right? Paul's eager to preach in Rome. Why? Because he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's God's power who saves all who believe. Well, how is all that happening? Well, God saves us because he has revealed his righteousness by faith. And now his point here, we need God's righteousness by faith because God has revealed his wrath. That's his flow of thought. And so we make a break between verses 17 and 18, and we should, but Paul doesn't want us to see a major break here. Let me read a little bit more now from some of these quotations. Um, this next one is from a, a pastor in Britain who's a progressive pastor. I think he pronounced his name Steve Chalky, but I might be wrong there. But anyway, he says this. Penal substitution is tantamount to child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. And then from a man named Rob Bell. God did not set up the sacrificial system. People did. The sacrificial system evolved as humans developed rituals and rites to help them deal with their guilt and fear. Now remember, we're not talking people that are way out in left field. We're talking about people who are part of the evangelical church. A man named Brian Zond wrote a book, The Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And he writes, Calvary is not where we see how violent God is. Calvary is where we see how violent our civilization is. And then uh, some more here. This is, um, again, from uh, this Brian Zond. The only thing God will call justice is setting the world right, not punishing an innocent substitute for the petty sake of appeasement. And then maybe you've heard of Rachel Held Evans. She's somewhat popular. She writes, Jesus came to die, they often say, referring to a view of Christianity that reduces the gospel to a transaction, whereby God needed a spotless sacrifice to atone for the world's sins and thus sacrifice Jesus on the cross so believers could go to heaven. In this view, Jesus basically shows up to post our bail. And then Brian Zond says, The cross is not a picture of payment. The cross is a picture of forgiveness. The cross is not where God finds a whipping boy to vent his rage upon. The cross is where God saves the world through self-sacrificing love. The sacrifice of Jesus was necessary to convince us to quit producing sacrificial victims. But it was not necessary to convince God to forgive. <clears throat> I could read more. But this theme of God's wrath is one that all of us would rather not talk about very much. But even in our evangelical, broadly Christian culture uh, here in America, 
more and more and more people are just basically doing away with God's wrath. I just read some of that for you. Of course, Nathaniel went to Wheaton. And some of these woke ideas have been taught there for at least 50 years now. This isn't anything new. This is something that's been going on for over a generation now. But as she entitles her book, this kind of teaching is really another gospel. It is not the truth that Paul gives us here. Okay? But let's not, if you will, inch toward those viewpoints, right? We, we, we don't really want to talk about sin. We'd rather minimize it and emphasize God's goodness rather than his wrath. But we can't just highlight one aspect of God's character, whether it's wrath or goodness. We must uphold both of them. And as we consider God's attributes, we must recognize that we are made in the image of God and some of God's attributes are found in us. We exhibit them. And so whether it's wisdom or holiness or righteousness or love or patience or wrath, right, we have them because we're made in God's image. But like each of them, <clears throat> though there are similarities, there is a vast difference between us and God too. When we speak of a loving father, for example, God in some ways is altogether different because of our sin and our limitations. His love is perfect, not permissive. His love is completely for our good and not just when he has a good day. Well, the same then can be said about God's wrath. Our wrath and anger and vengeance is almost always selfish. You might remember when <clears throat> Paul Munson did a Sunday school lesson on righteous anger. There is something that is uh, righteous anger. Uh, unfortunately, we just don't do it very often. <laughs> hey, most of the time, our anger and wrath is vindictive, resentful, filled with bitterness, bloodthirsty, petty. But God's wrath is different. And so what most of these progressive people are speaking against is our wrath. And they've imposed that on God. But God's wrath is just. It is holy. It is completely fair. It is not compulsive. God's wrath is a sinless revulsion to sin. This is generally true, but also it is true individually. God hates my sin, not just sin in general. Now, one of the things that we see um, somewhat frequently in the context of God's wrath is the idea of a cup. So let's look at a few passages here briefly. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 51. Here's one example of it. Okay, Isaiah 51 and in verse 17, <clears throat> it says this, Isaiah 51, 17, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling, and drained it out. So here's one example. Let's turn then to Revelation chapter 14. Here's another example. So one from the old, one from the new here. Uh, in Revelation 14 and verse 9. 
Revelation 14, 9. Then the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And it continues here. But again, you see this idea of a cup, right? Now, let's just do one more, and that is with reference to Christ. In Matthew 26, when Jesus is in the garden praying and the disciples are sleeping and such, in Matthew 26, note verse 39, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Obviously referring to the cup of God's judgment. So when you think of a cup, right? I've got this glass here, right? It's limited, right? It's not like, I'm not going to do it, but if I were to go, whoo, and the water would go everywhere, right? (laughs) Okay? It's limited. It's contained. It's, can you say, controlled? It's specific. The, The idea of cup is a if you will just a limiting thought in terms of God's wrath we're not talking about a divine temper tantrum okay we're not talking about wine getting spewed everywhere Cooper's would really be mad if I were to do demonstrate that one right (laughs) but again you see the image here God's wrath is not spiteful like a spurned lover. It's not erratic like a petulant child. Now, in the New Testament anyway, there are two key words that speak of God's wrath. And the first one's not used much, 12 times. Paul uses it once here in Romans. Uh, Eight of the 12 are used of God. And it emphasizes, if you will, heat. Okay, In the Old Testament, the, the nostrils flare. Okay, so you, know, you picture this red face and the veins popping out. You know, it's a violent rage is the idea of this word. But again, it's not out of control. Think of the cup, right? It's limited. It's, it's specific. But what's important about this word is that God's wrath is not, if you will, mechanical. It's not just something that's going to happen with cause and effect kind of idea. God's emotional here. He hates sin. He's mad. Okay. Now in our house, sometimes we get a little too mad at the children. (laughs) Okay. But it's right for us to be mad when they sin. Now we need to control that, right? Our, Our anger should be in a cup. And it doesn't always happen. It spills over. But do you see the idea? And this is the one idea of God's wrath. The other word is used 36 times, so three times more often, and 12 times in Romans, and five in this section here. And this word emphasizes a settled opposition to all evil. You might say it's more controlled. Okay? The first one emphasizes the emotion. This emphasizes the more, if you will, can you say, platonic approach to wrath, so to speak. And so God does get emotional, but it is a controlled emotion. And his wrath is exact. It is just the right amount. Not too much, not too little. 
It's in a cup. Okay. <clears throat> when parents get too angry, they tend to produce abusers, violent citizens, cowed doorbats, rebellious children. Parents that don't do enough also produce rebellious children, and then children who think their parents don't love them. Some of those children want order, so they join the military or the police force or something like that. But God's wrath is perfect. It is just, controlled in these ways. It is not sinful. It is punishment for sin. All right, now if I were to liken this to what we saw in verse 17, we talked about God's righteousness, and I spent a whole sermon on it, but there's more to talk about. And one of the things that I didn't talk about so much, at least not in this way, is that when we talk about God's righteousness, we have two basic thoughts. And the first one theologians will call a remunerative righteousness, meaning God will reward or bless those who do what is right. Okay? The other is the retributive righteousness. So God punishes those who break the law, his law. And obviously that's the emphasis here. Now let me say one more thing here in this way, uh, in light of some of the things that I read. If we are going to go down this path to say that God is not wrathful and he's just loving, right? So the cross is not about wrath, the cross is about love, right? As as I read in those few quotes. Um, How can you do that? I mean, think about it. As a child or as a parent, if the child does not, uh, does not have his sin punished or if the parent doesn't punish the, the sin in the child, is that loving? Uh, if you don't have wrath, you really don't have love. If you don't discipline your children, you're not loving them. Okay. And so God, you might say, has to be wrathful because of our sin. And as Paul is going to demonstrate in these verses, this wrath is revealed in all kinds of ways. So our first thought here, as we get started in this section, is what is God's wrath? And again, primarily, there is an emotion to it, but it's control. And it's against sin. Now notice what he says then, as uh, we look back here at verse 18. Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the next point to make here simply is that um, Paul is saying God's wrath is revealed against all sin, not just some. Now, theologians will try to say, well, Paul gives somewhat uh, of a structure here. Excuse me, and they'll say that uh, ungodliness refers to the rest of chapter one, and unrighteousness refers to two one to three eight, and so on. Um, uh, okay, maybe there's some truth to that, but again, in verses eighteen to thirty two, we see some theological sin here, as well as moral decay, and in chapter two, we see moral decay, not just theological sin. Um, so I'm not sure how hard we should press that, but. Generally, it's true, but his point is is simply this. God's wrath is against all sin, all ungodliness, all unrighteousness, all impiety, all immorality. 
Not just some of it, but all of it. Boy, that makes us squirm, doesn't it? We, we, really? Okay, you, know, you think of it as parents, right? Did you punish, or are you punishing every sin that your child commits? Okay, of course we don't. Let's read here a moment from chapter 2. Note verse 8. <clears throat> but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, there's the words there, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. What then, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. No exceptions. Okay. No one is exempt. Nothing is overlooked. God is impartial in this way. He hates all sin. Okay. Now, <clears throat> certainly I mentioned uh, parents here, but we could talk about the magistrate and other settings uh, and, and that never happens, does it? Okay, there are some sins that are overlooked, some crimes that are not punished, but not with God. It's not that God punishes some sin and not others, just, just the big ones or something, and it lets the little white lies or the wooden swearing go because those aren't all that important. Now, all sin is hated by God and punished by him. God isn't like what we see in our culture right now, that, that if you're not part of the woke crowd, then, then you know, you're going to be punished. But if you are part of the woke crowd, then you can do whatever you want. Hey, God's not like that. All sin. All evil. Again, we don't really like to think about that, but on the other hand, isn't it comforting to know that all sin will be taken care of by God, either through Christ or through eternal judgment. And that is an encouragement. All right, so we're talking about what God's wrath is and the extent of, uh, of it towards sin. Now let's look at the question of how. How is God's wrath revealed? All right, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, he says. So first of all, he says it's from heaven. So this is not something impartial. This isn't just some cosmic cause and effect here. This is judgment, wrath, anger that comes from God's throne. It's personal. Sin is such an offense to God that it comes, the response to it comes directly from God's throne. The evils that we see in society, in nature, in everyday living, those aren't random. It didn't just happen. We weren't at the wrong place at the wrong time. These are judgments, maybe benevolent judgments on God's part, disciplines, but they are coming from his throne and they are a revelation of God himself in our lives. God is informing us, instructing us, making known to us, demonstrating his wrath when these things happen. And so, how is it revealed? Well, first of all, it's very personal, Paul says. 
Now, the word reveal means to uncover. Okay, so you know, <clears throat> kids were cleaning their bedrooms yesterday, okay, and they discovered a few things. <laughs> okay, they uncovered, you know, pulled the blankets off or, you know, whatever, and they found some things, right, and to, un- to reveal, to uncover, pulling back the curtain, you know, these kinds of ideas. And so how is God's wrath revealed? Well, he is uncovering his wrath, Paul is saying, in these various ways. His, his wrath is uncovered against all sin. Now, how? Well, God reveals his wrath in two primary ways. And the first one is through his word. Okay, we call this special revelation. God reveals himself to a special group of people. To a certain group, not everyone, but to a certain group at a certain time in a certain place. So we, we think of the scriptures ultimately, but think within the scriptures. Think of Moses when he was on Mount Sinai. Here is God's revelation to Moses, including some of his wrath. Right? Think of the golden calf and so forth. This came to Moses directly. And then Moses shared it with the rest of Israel. And so it's special revelation. We could say the same thing with David and the prophets. You can talk about Samuel anointing David, and that was part of God's wrath against Saul. And then later, of course, with Bathsheba, Nathan brought the word, uncovered God's wrath to David in that setting. Certainly we can talk about Jesus. We just read from John 8, and... You can understand in some ways why the Jews got so upset with him. He's saying, your your father's the devil. You're not children of Abraham. I mean, they weren't very happy about that. But God's wrath was revealed to them through the words of Christ. So, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Well, part of that comes through God's word. But that's not Paul's emphasis here. His emphasis here is God's wrath is revealed through what we call general revelation. This is revelation, an uncovering that goes to everyone in general. Not just special people, but to everyone. So, we have... Chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, this specific words of judgment that comes in the scriptures. But we have God's wrath revealed to everyone through three primary ways. And the first is creation. God makes himself known to every human being in three ways. And first is creation. Note verse 19. What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. How? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. And he continues. Now what often happens is we read that verse in isolation. We say, well, God makes himself known in creation. Well, yeah, that's true. Hey, go out there, look at the trees. Yeah, look in the mirror. Hey, look at the sun, moon, and the stars. Look under a microscope. Yeah, any one of those things shows that God exists, and everybody knows this. God has revealed himself in this way. But remember, Paul's point is that God is revealing his wrath through the creation. How so? 
Well, eventually this white oak's going to fall down or blow down or we'll cut it down, right? God's wrath is revealed in the things that he has made. Okay, we, we watched a little bit of this Ken Ham thing this morning, and they talked for a, a few moments about bacteria and how much bacteria there is in the world. Some of it's good and so on. Some of it clearly is not. Okay. These things are a result of sin. Let's turn to Romans 8. Okay, Paul's words here, I think, make it very clear. In Romans 8... And um, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In other words, it wasn't made that way, but now it's subjected because of sin. Uh, So verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So when we have storms and earthquakes and dry spells and hey, animals dying and trees falling over, I mean, all these things are part of God's revelation of his wrath against sin. And so these things show us God. They also show us God's wrath. And that's Paul's emphasis. Now, the second way that God reveals himself to everyone in general is in conscience. So creation and now conscience. If you look at chapter 2 and uh, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So Paul is saying that we know God's law, and not just because he gave it to Moses on the tablets of stone. We know God's law, even if we have never heard of Moses in the Ten Commandments, because that law is written on our hearts. God put it there. To be made in the image of God, part of what that means is we have a conscience that knows what is right and what is wrong. And so everyone knows that stealing the candy from the store is wrong. Everyone knows lying and cheating on a test is wrong. We don't need a law to tell us that. It's already there. But again, Paul's emphasis here is that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness. How is it revealed in conscience? Well, the conscience that is dull or seared, the conscience that no longer says doing this wrong thing is wrong, and they now say that it is right, that it is good, or they don't feel guilt when they do something wrong, that's part of God's wrath. A dull conscience is part of God's wrath revealed against all sin. Now the third way that God reveals himself to all in general is what we call providence. Let's turn to Acts chapter 14 here a moment. This is when Paul was on his first missionary journey. He came to Lystra with Barnabas. And remember, they thought they were gods and so on. And in Acts 14, beginning in verse 15, Paul responds and says, 
Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, right? A revelation. In that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Part of God's revelation of himself to everyone in general is by caring for his creation. Giving us food, giving us shelter, giving us good things. Okay. Um, but when that doesn't happen, that is a revelation of God's wrath. When we don't have enough to make ends meet, when our bellies go hungry... Yeah, it's usually because some government is doing something that's not right. But it's also a sign of God's wrath, of his judgment. The history of the world is filled with God's judgments. It'll be fully implemented, of course, on the final day of judgment. But when we see providentially things happening from day to day in the course of history that are not so good... This is part of God's wrath revealed against him. And so in these three ways, God makes himself known. Creation, conscience, and providence. But again, Paul's emphasis here is, we see in these three ways, God being angry with sin. And it's this third one that Paul emphasizes throughout the rest of chapter 1. God gives us over to our sin. And so God's providence when wrath is revealed, shows itself in these various ways. And we'll look at that as we go through the rest of the chapter. All right. So today, we have this question of what and how briefly answered. So the next time, we're going to emphasize why God's wrath is revealed against sin. All right. Well, let's pray as we conclude here. Our Father and God, we are thankful for your word and what you teach us here. We are thankful also for your general revelation and how you teach us through those things as well. And both teach us about your anger against sin. Both teach us that you hate things that are wrong, that are unrighteous, that are ungodly, and that you will and do respond accordingly. We are thankful, Lord, that you have given us your word, that we may understand this general, general revelation clearly. And we are thankful, Lord, that you are a God of wrath, and that you don't just overlook sin. You don't just let it go and allow sin to flourish. Not ultimately. And for this, we are grateful. But, Lord, we also then are grateful that your wrath is revealed, but so too is your righteousness, that your wrath has been poured out on Christ for your people, and we don't have to face, ultimately, your judgments. Lord, we are grateful for this. Lord, as we make our way through this section and talk about sin and judgment and things that are uncomfortable and so forth, uh, may we still hear what you say that we might better understand your grace and goodness to us. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.